Hello and a very warm welcome to The State of Our Nation, a podcast by Access Social Care. I'm your host, Carrie Gersteimer, and today we're going to be talking to experts, leaders and change makers about all things adult social care. We will all need social care at some point in our lives and at Access Social Care, our aim is to ensure that people get the support they have a right to. So listen along to find out more about the state of our nation as we discuss the challenges facing millions of people in need of social care across the country. Welcome to the State of Our Nation podcast, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Chris Minnick and Lainey Goff onto the podcast this time. So um, just to give a little bit of context to the episode, we're going to be looking at legal aid and community care this month. And that's particularly important this month because the Ministry of Justice has just announced that they're going to be doing a civil legal aid review. So I'm really delighted to be able to invite Chris Minnick, who is the Chief Executive of the Legal Aid Practitioners Group to join us today, along with Lainey Goff, who's a Director of Operations and Impact at Access Social Care, and is particularly responsible for a programme of work that we're doing looking at the career pathway for community care lawyers. So Chris, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me along. I'm really pleased to be doing this today. I'm glad that you're here. So let's kick off then just hearing a little bit about your work. Could you perhaps tell us, for those who aren't in the know, um, can you tell us a little bit about what legal aid is for? Yes, absolutely. I mean, in its purest sense, or its simplest sense, legal aid is, is a funding mechanism. It's a, one of a number of funding mechanisms that uh, enable legal cases to be brought or defended, depending on, on how you view it. But actually, the legal aid system was developed with much higher ideals and principles in mind. It was introduced in 1949. It was uh, described at the time as a pillar of the welfare state. And it was a recognition by government that uh, if you're thinking through some of the fundamental principles of the constitution of the democracy in the UK, um, and you think about the rule of law, that essentially what you need to do is address some of the issues that prevent people who don't have the means to pay for legal advice to have access to the legal system. Uh, so the, the legislators at the time felt that essentially, if you're going to have uh, equality before the law, then that needs to include access to the law and access to the justice system and the, in the infrastructure that involves. But because it's a legalistic process and the law is complex, there are costs involved in that. And those costs are beyond the means of most people. And indeed, when the scheme was introduced in 1949, around about 80% of the population was eligible for legal aid, and it covered a really wide array of legal problems, because that was a recognition that the majority of the population doesn't have the means to, to meet those legal costs. And those costs are, are predominantly the advice uh, from lawyers and the represent, representation that's required in the court system or the tribunal system, uh, and then there are other associated costs that the legal aid scheme is designed to cover as well, the costs of court fees and experts and those sorts of things. So it's a funding mechanism, but it's also uh, an important part of the rule of law and of, democrat of, sort of democratic institutions in the UK to enable people to either defend their rights or to protect themselves from the state, protect their rights by uh, accessing the legal advice they need to do that. 
Thank you. That's really clear, Chris. And obviously for people with health and social care needs, being able to access justice if they have been experienced unlawful decision making um, or want to challenge a decision that impacts upon their life that access to legal aid obviously becomes really really important so just to follow on then could you tell us a little bit Chris about the legal aid practitioners group what do you do as an organization and and who do you represent of course yes so we're a membership body a membership organization Uh, our members come from across England and Wales our membership is based on an organisational level. So if an organisation has a contract to deliver legal aid services with the government, then they can become a member of LAPG and all of their employees become members by virtue of that. So that covers uh, primarily solicitor firms, but there are a large number of not-for-profit organisations that deliver legal aid services as well, and they're members of ours, including law centres and Citizens Advice and a number of other independent advice agencies. Our members are also barristers because they play an important part in the delivery of the legal aid system, even if they're not directly contracted with the government. Uh, And then our members also represent other NGOs and policy representatives that have interest in access to justice and the legal aid system. Our primary role uh, in representing the interests of our members is dealing directly with government and trying to convince them of a number of different things that we break down essentially into the, the bigger policy issues. And if we look at the Civil Legal Aid Review, which we're going to discuss later, that probably falls into that bracket. But then also the day-to-day operational issues. It's a very, very complex scheme. It's an immensely complex and bureaucratic scheme. Um, and that creates a great deal of sort of problematic day-to-day issues that need to be resolved on our members' behalf just to make the scheme work as, as well as it possibly could. So, and what interested you in legal aid, Chris? How did you come to be chief exec of the LAPG? Oh, gosh, it's quite circuitous, so I'll be quick. Um, so <laughs> I came to the UK 20-odd years ago. My first role, ironically, was in what was then the Legal Services Commission, then has now become the Legal Aid Agency. I lasted eight months before I felt I absolutely had to leave the civil service and work on the other side of the fence, and I went and worked in essentially a, a law centre uh, delivering housing advice. After a number of years, I, I went on to managing that charity legal aid contract uh, and that eventually involved getting more and more involved in policy work and I joined LAPG as a volunteer on their advisory committee uh, and a number of years after that when they uh, when they were looking for someone to take on an operations role at LAPG I, I took that on um, and, and eventually that led to me becoming chief executive but it was it was that that desire because you can when you work in legal aid, you see the power of what I described earlier as a funding mechanism, which sounds quite clinical, but actually the lawyers that deliver legal aid, they do that because they have this uh, fundamental commitment to this concept of access to justice, and they see legal aid as the conduit for doing that. They, they know they can't assist particular type client groups, or they can't resolve particular types of problems, or they can't challenge the state where it deserves and needs to be challenged. In the absence of legal aid so it becomes a calling um, but that calling is one that has been uh what's the most polite way of saying it, it hasn't been listened to by government uh for many years decades successive governments and so there's an enormous amount of policy work that goes on to try and reverse that and again we're going to talk later about this legal aid review and how important that's going to be I can really hear the passion there, Chris. Thank you. And from people that work in the sector, I think it's it is really 
recognized that you are in service if you're working and doing legal aid work. It's not a well-paid part of the legal profession. You're doing it because you really want to fight for social justice issues. And um, and, and that's really come through in what, what you've just said. So thank you. Lainey, welcome to um, the podcast. You're a director at Access Social Care. Um, it would be brilliant if you could just tell us a little bit about your day-to-day role at Access Social Care and why legal aid matters to you. Thank you, Carrie. I oversee our operations, which involves thinking about what our clients need from us, and that's a whole range of things. And we know that there's a really low awareness of rights, and so we work quite hard to try and engage different groups through our training program and our our workshops that we put on so that individuals understand what their rights are. And we have a casework offer um, to to a few. It's it's not available um, to all just at the moment, but you know that's that's the long term goal. Um, we do some strategic casework. We try and change local systems through our hub work, and we're also doing some national system change work. Of course, we have the chatbot as well, which is a great tool to um, support people to understand what their rights are and to start trying to um, challenge some of what they're seeing um, go wrong and, and ensure that that you know they get packages of support that can meet their needs. Um, so, so my role is, is to continue to think about all of that, to ensure that what we're doing is really, really effective um, and that we're doing it as efficiently as, as we can. Um, my background is um, as a legal aid lawyer, so I've seen, you know, through my professional practice, how important it is for legal aid to be there uh, for individuals in their time of need. I really think legal aid is a lifeline for many. And I'm really passionate about ensuring that as many people as possible are able to access legal aid. And we'll talk a bit more about some of what we're seeing at, at Access Social Care and, and why legal aid continues to be so important to many. Thank you, Lainey. So, Chris, let's look then at some of the specific concerns that you have about the current state of the legal aid system. You started to touch upon them there. It'd be really interesting to hear a little bit more. Of course, yeah. I think you can probably boil down the problems with the existing legal aid system into two very, very broad themes. One is that the scheme, after years and years of tinkering by government, or actually in some cases quite swinging changes, it doesn't meet the needs of clients. It simply isn't a scheme that covers the types of problems to the requisite level that clients present with. This is both in sort of a social care, community care setting, but across civil legal aid and, and arguably in some parts of criminal legal aid as well. And that's about the way the system's been designed, but it's also about the degree to which the government believes that it has a responsibility to fund certain types of cases or not fund, which is what's happened a lot in recent years. The second big problem is that is the way that the system has been designed from a practitioner perspective. It, it doesn't help practitioners in the way that it should to deliver their services in the most effective way possible. And that's partly the way that the, con- the contracts are constructed uh, and the levels of bureaucracy and risk that are involved in delivering legal aid. But it's also fundamentally about the, the fee levels, which was set, the current fee levels in civil legal aid were set in 1996. Um, and of course, all costs associated with delivering a service have increased since then. The Law Society has recently calculated that's around about 
a 49% increase in the cost of delivering services during that period while fees have remained stagnant and in fact in civil legal aid in 2011 they were cut by 10%. So you get this growing disparity between the fee levels, which were already low when they were set, below the rates that um, solicitors could charge in private practice, stagnating and this growing disparity between the fee levels and what it costs to actually deliver an effective service. And legal services are ex expensive to deliver. There's no way around that. Professional services. And, and those are some pretty staggering real terms cuts in funding that you're Absolutely. that you're painting there, Chris. Yes. Yeah. So that, that's, as I said, there's, there's two two big problems. And and actually what we're hoping and what we'll probably talk about a little later on is that both of those major problems, which of course have lots of problems within them, are, are directly addressed by the civil legal aid. So Chris, curious, you've, you've commissioned a legal aid census. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. And it, it ties in slightly with what well, uh, quite directly with what I've just said, because one of the difficulties with doing policy work in this area and engaging with government is that there is a dearth of research around critical elements of the legal aid system. The census was designed to try and fill one of those gaps, which is our understanding of the workforce. Now, when you think about directly funded services, sorry, services that are directly funded by governments such as education and, and the NHS, the nurses, the doctors, the teachers, the government has a lot of information about that workforce. They know how many vacancies they have. They know the profile of the people that are coming in and leaving the sector. They know in a great deal of detail what those people do on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, they do a lot of measurement of those sorts of things. Now, legal aid is a step removed in the sense that legal aid lawyers aren't directly employed by the government. They're all independent organisations that have a contract. But there is virtually nothing known at any granular level about the workforce. And what we wanted to try and do was get a better understanding of who delivers legal aid, why they deliver legal aid, what their primary concerns were in relation to how they deliver legal aid and what, what needs to change to make it more effective and more sustainable. But also the, the next generation of legal aid lawyers, which is such a critical issue, there's a real crisis in the recruitment uh, of legal aid lawyers. And so we wanted to speak to prospective legal aid lawyers. We wanted to speak to former legal aid lawyers and say, why did you leave the profession? Why did you stop delivering legal aid services. So we commissioned these four joint surveys. We knew, being a relatively small organisation, that we didn't have the resources to do a fully comprehensive workforce survey that, that you might get, for example, in the NHS. But critically, for things like the NHS workforce data, that directly impacts on the service planning and the policy making within the NHS, and also it directly impacts on things like negotiations over pay. Um, and so in the absence of all of the information, we were saying, if you don't have the information, how are you planning your services? How do you know what's effective? How do you, how do you know how many providers you need and where they should be and what services they should be delivering to um, meet legal need? So in part, it was an exercise in gathering data, but in part, it was an exercise in demonstrating to government you, need to, you yourselves need to gather better and more data to be able to um, effectively review and, and commission legal aid services. And the census um, showed some quite worrying trends, didn't it, around the, the problems with workforce recruitment and retention? It, it did. It, it, it unfortunately told us what we already knew anecdotally, which was a, a useful thing. And it's a, a, tool, a tool that we can use when we engage with the Civil League Labor Review. And did we will and put the census out there so other organisations can use it as well. Uh, it, it demonstrated uh, trends that we're starting to see in other areas, such as the ageing 
profile of the workforce, difficult it is to recruit people, how quickly when people come into legal aid, they often leave because they get to a point where they're not earning enough to, to move on to that next phase of their lives because the organization's fees that they get from legal aid are just so low they can't compete with local authority, in-house legal teams uh, or high street practice, or even uh, where practitioners uh, stay within the same area of law, but they just can't maintain their practices on legal aid rates. And so they, they leave legal aid and move into private paying work, and which of course is an entirely sensible decision, but it means that those that huge uh, tranche of clients that can't pay for service themselves have nowhere to turn. And the numbers of providers has plummeted since LASPO was introduced most areas it's gone down by 30 to 40 percent uh, and every organization that we speak to tells us that one of the critical problems they have is encouraging young lawyers to come through get qualified in legal aid and then remain in legal aid so there's a real problem at the end of that process as well in terms of succession planning for organizations so what often happens is that the point at which the person who's committed to legal aid the senior partner decides it's time to retire there's no one to pass it on to and that legal aid contract just goes into the ether a disturbing picture. So, Lainey, um, we've heard from Chris on the general state of legal aid. Could you help us focus in then on the problems with legal aid for community care and how these affect access social care clients? Yes, definitely. Um, it might be helpful if I just go go back a step just to make sure that we're all starting from the same kind of point of understanding. Um, when we talk about legal aid and community care work, um, for us at Access, that refers to, to two main things. One is your core community care work, which are you know, the challenges that, that um, individuals might want to bring if a public body is failing to meet its statutory duties. And, and ultimately, if that's not resolved, that ends up um, as a judicial review, you know, potentially. But Legal aid for community care also covers work that's done in the court of protection. And the funding structure is ever so slightly different for those two different areas of work. So for your core community care work, you tend to start cases at legal help uh, stage, which is a fixed fee scheme that operates. Um, But the whole premise of the fixed fee scheme doesn't really work for community care work at all. Community care work is really, really complex. You tend to have clients coming to you in a state of crisis and increasingly so, given the problems in social care at the moment. Um, People without adequate understanding of of what's happened to them so far so there isn't a paper trail for example for solicitors to to kind of have a look at so you need to get hold of all of that paperwork work extremely quickly in urgent situations and a fixed fee scheme which essentially pays you for five and a half hours amount of work just doesn't work for the much for the vast majority of cases for court of protection work what you see is an ability really to to leapfrog over that legal help um, funding position and to move on to um, certificated funding, which is an hourly rate um, of funding. And and the hourly rate is is a lot higher than that at fixed fee scheme um, through legal help. So there's almost a a two-tier system at play. And for those um, cases that are run on fixed fee, um, they can often be loss-making for solicitors, can't they? The fixed fee scheme 
if if you can do more than 16 hours of work at fixed fee stage then you hit what's called the escape fee so there's an opportunity to to break out beyond that fixed fee mechanism but a lot of the issues are so obviously unlawful that you don't need to do 16 hours of work to um to to resolve a particular um matter uh, and so you're not going to hit the escape fee and so it is loss making absolutely and and there's a problem with moving things beyond the fixed fee scheme onto a certificate there's really inconsistent practice and inconsistent decision making from the legal aid agency which just adds to all of the problems um and so it was interesting listening to Chris talk about the number of providers that there are um, across legal aid, because what's quite interesting in community care is that the number of providers has stayed relatively steady. And we think that the way in which people are making legal aid work for community care is is to use the court of protection and use um, certificated work and, and work that's done in, in the court of protection over and above legal help. Um, and core community care work. The number of certificates has increased for community care and the overall cost um, and and, and the budget for certificated work has increased. And and that must be because of an increase in cases being brought through the Court of Protection. And we need to do a bit more work to try and evidence all of that. But that's our assumption. What we see on the flip side is a 77% reduction in the number of legal help cases that have been opened in the last 10 years. That's absolutely astonishing, a 77% reduction. And if you put that into context even more, all issues remained in scope post-LASPO. So LASPO is the Legal Aid Sentencing and Punishment of Offenders Act 2012. So a number of areas of legal aid had um, issues cut from scope. So that essentially meant that solicitors had to reduce uh, the types of issues that they were able to use legal aid to advise clients on. Community care um, remained, everything remained in scope, and yet there's been a 77% reduction. Mental health also didn't have anything cut from scope, and there's only been a 1% reduction in the number of legal help cases opened in mental health. So why is there such a staggering fall in the number of, of legal help cases being opened? It's really shocking, isn't it? Particularly, as we know from our own data at Access Social Care, that um, the number of people calling helplines needing advice about um, social care has risen by over 100% compared to pre-pandemic, and the figures just don't seem to be going down. So the demand is definitely there. And we're really seeing that impact on our clients, aren't we? Absolutely. We can see um, we, we work so hard. Sometimes we're contacting up to 10 different legal aid providers to see if they would take a case on to bring judicial review proceedings. And, and you know, these are proceedings that are likely to um, to need certificated work, but there's just so many problems with um, firms being able to keep cases on a certificate and therefore get paid what they need to to continue doing the work. That all you know, there are no adequate incentives in place for lawyers to be taking these cases on, and it's a real shame because clients have nowhere to go. The latest figure from ADAS when they did their survey of directors of adult social care is that 94% of directors feel that they don't have the funding or the workforce to be able to meet their statutory duties. And that statistic keeps going up and up and up. If we don't have an adequate legal aid system in place, it really doesn't bear thinking about. And we really see the the hard edge of that when we 
talk about our clients, some of the cases that we work on are, are really shocking, aren't they? It's really, it's really, really shocking. I mean, we see the full spectrum of need. And, and what's really worrying is that we can see how early intervention and, and just a little bit of extra support. So a few funded hours of, of social care can make a massive difference to the whole family dynamic. And we too often see when that isn't provided, how wrong it can go. And, and you I think there was a podcast a couple of weeks ago that looked in particular at our assessment and treatment unit work. And it's, you know, there is a pattern there for that work and you can see how people's needs escalate and they become much more expensive packages of care to then fund. And there isn't really a way to go back once you've hit that point. So if you looked overall at the cost to the public purse, it's really um, silly to, to try and find savings to legal aid, for example, because you you pay for it elsewhere. So let's focus in then on the impact that the legal aid system has on community care lawyers, Lainey. You've been doing some research into this. I'm I'm curious to hear more. Yeah, so we published our Career Pathway report last year, and that that showed a number of really worrying things. One, um, again, it uh, anecdotally, you know, we all suspected that cases weren't being taken on because they were loss making and it's you know just not cost effective for for some firms to be able to carry out that work and and that's that's what our report showed to be the case there's other kind of workforce issues i suppose um we saw that there's a real lack of awareness um of of community care as as an area that graduates can focus on um and and make a career in and then there's kind of this awful cycle that we see. So the few that do make it into community care are leaving because rates of pay are too low. Um, people are having to choose between you know, getting a mortgage or starting a family and staying in community care. That's what our surveys indicated. Um, it's then also really hard to, to continue um, working in community care and to maintain your supervisor status, which is you know what you need to really bring in new talent. And there's all sorts of reasons for that, but you know we need to try and influence and create some changes to that supervisor status because you, you, you you're not going to um, be able to support new graduates if you are lucky enough to attract them to community care in the first place. Um, and the other real concern was stress and burnout that's affecting the sector and and you know what contributes to that is a difficult relationship between certain lawyers and the legal aid agency. Um, what also contributes to that is just the challenges of working um, in community care where you're um, feeling like you're really the last resort and the last port of call for people who are in a really critical situation and desperately need better support. And Access Social Care have been really heavily investing in our workforce to try and look at some of those resilient issues, haven't we? We've tried all sorts of things. Yep, we have done some team coaching to really foster a, a close-knit team and, and a team that feel that they're able to rely on each other. We were fortunate enough to receive some funding to pilot working with doctors in distress who tend to support the medical profession but are, are starting to work with the legal sector a little bit more. So um, our legal team had access to... Um, 
small group reflective practice sessions with um with a psychotherapist and we're also looking at other ways that we can continue providing one-to-one supports for particular members of our team who are um struggling with with the content of of their seeing on some of their cases some really important learning then from that resilience work that we've been carrying out at access social care So the government is carrying out a civil legal aid review. Let's move now to having a little bit of a discussion about that, Chris. Um, Could you perhaps tell us um, about the review? And I'm curious to hear how far you think it will help to ensure improved access to justice. Uh, Of course. I mean, that's a really important question. I think it's a difficult one to answer, though, because uh, while an element of the civil legal aid review has been published, uh, the government has not yet fully explained uh, what it's going to be doing. So there are four elements to the civil legal aid review. Two of them are in the public domain and that the government is commissioning an analyst to carry out what they're calling an economic analysis of civil legal aid. And there is a document that's been published to explain a little bit more detail of what that means. But essentially, they are looking at legal aid, civil legal aid as a market. And so they're looking at the factors that make that a market in terms of what the government commissions, who delivers services, how clients access services. But there's not really enough information yet uh, in the public domain to fully understand the scope and the purpose and the objectives of that work. At the same time, they're looking. They're asking the analysts to do what's called an international comparison exercise. So they're looking at other similar jurisdictions, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, um, for example, and seeing whether there are lessons that can be learned from those jurisdictions that they can then um, implant into the England, England and Wales system. And we're we're very cautious of that approach because of the quite significant difference, differences between the justice systems, the socioeconomic differences, the way the clients access problems, the types of problems. There's a whole list of reasons why you have to be very careful before you assume that a solution in one country can be uh, utilised in another. There are two, two other elements, which is gathering together from the government's perspective all the useful data, your report, census, uh, other bits that are in the public domain, their own data, uh, to publish uh, essentially they did in crime, which what they called a data compendium. Uh, and then they're also going to carry out a little bit of research uh, about the user experience of clients who come through the civil legal aid system. But those last two elements, the data compendium and the, the user research component, there's no information in the public domain yet, so we're, we wait to see. When we met recently with the Ministry of Justice, they explained that the current terms of reference that are published are only for one element. And so we're waiting for overarching terms of reference, timelines, objectives, et cetera, for the whole of the review, which is a little bit frustrating because you would have expected them to publish that first so that we get a sense of the the whole scope and purpose of of the review before they started looking at some of those elements in a bit more detail. How far will it go to ensure access to justice is a very difficult question to answer because in the policy world, uh, what we've been doing for decades is to try and demonstrate the weaknesses within the civil legal aid system, or indeed the whole of the legal aid system. And successive governments haven't listened to us and they haven't been willing to listen to us because they tend to uh, work on the basis that they believe the legal aid system is too expensive. There's lots that's put in public statements from ministers to that effect, or that the lawyers who are working within the system are doing it for personal gain, which is manifestly untrue, Um, but also because at its heart, legal aid is used as a mechanism to challenge government. And so it's not a popular 
system within government. Whichever government is in power, they don't like being challenged. They don't like their institutions being challenged. They don't like being judicially reviewed. They don't like people being able to take public bodies to court to enforce their rights because they believe that then has cost implications. And Lady mentioned earlier that you know, managers within those services know they don't have the resources to actually um, fulfill their statutory obligations. Uh, and, and so being challenged to do that, uh, just in their mind, not in their mind, in the government's mind, increases the costs uh, elsewhere in the system. But if the government takes this review as an opportunity to do exactly what Laney just said, which is look at the actual cost savings of investing in legal aid, seeing legal aid as a way of resolving problems, and not just in adult social care, but across the whole range of civil legal aid, there are ways that you can demonstrate that if you invest in legal aid and if people can exercise their rights or be protected from uh, wrongs, unlawful decisions by public bodies, that there are actual savings to be made elsewhere in the public sector. So if you think about ensuring that somebody has the right benefits in place or is not subject to sanctions and you can put that person's benefits in place and stabilise their income and reduce their debts, then they're in a much better position. They're not likely to have the same health conditions that arise from that. They're in a much better position to take on employment. They're in a much better position to ensure their children education, et cetera, et cetera. And that research has never really been done properly or comprehensively by government. It's not currently, as we understand it, going to be part of the Civil Legal Aid Review. So a lot of organisations are pushing and pushing and pushing now to try and make the review more comprehensive, more effective, and, for example, to be looking in more detail at all areas of legal aid, because at the moment, the way it's framed, the review is only going to look at six areas of legal aid, which doesn't include community care. Um, uh, it will look at uh, housing, family, immigration, those sorts of areas, education, discrimination. But there are many other areas of legal aid that need the same level of analysis, because essentially it's an interlinked scheme. Uh, and the problems that people present with are often complex, multifaceted legal problems. And what we want is a holistic legal aid system that's properly funded that actually meets the needs of clients. Some really strong calls to action there. Thank you, Chris. And Lainey, just to come over to you then, I'm, I'm going to move on to our last questions. To improve the state of our nation, what one thing do you think would be the biggest game changer for legal aid in relation to the community care legal aid system? I think we need to scrap the fixed fee system. It doesn't reflect the work that goes into actually working a community care case. And so that needs to be torn up and we need to start from scratch with a system that actually suits the casework and suits clients' needs. Failing that, I will take a few quick wins and look for ways that we can improve more consistent decision-making. And, and do that by working together with the legal aid agency to see if we can just um, make some progress in, in the short term. Let's hope that the Ministry of Justice and the legal aid agency are listening. Chris, um, would you like to add anything, um, any further calls for action from you? I think Lainey's ideas are both really sensible and practical. Um, they probably demonstrate that for all of us in this in this field, we have ambitions that are sometimes limited by our experience of dealing with government and how undervalued the legal aid system is. So what I would like to see, and this is not specifically to communicate, but across the whole legal aid system, is a government that actually publicly and vocally uh, demonstrates its commitment to access to justice. Now, in the last decade or so, we've had a government that's done the opposite of that. Um, in fact, it's quite deliberately demonised the lawyers that deliver legal aid services. Uh, and that's 
part of a narrative that helps them to undermine the legal aid system. If we had a government that came out and championed legal aid as a fundamental pillar of the constitution, uh, as a way of ensuring that there's a healthy democracy and that people can flourish, even if it's built into something like the leveling up agenda, um, then what that would flow through into is a commitment to ensure that the scheme works and is properly funded. And that would eventually lead through right to what Lainey was saying. The fixed fee system hasn't been fit for purpose for a number of years. The, the, the escape three fee threshold that Lainey mentioned earlier is a false economy because even if you hit the escape threshold and get start getting paid at hourly rates, if every single one of those hours is paid at less than the cost of delivering the service, then all you're doing is recovering a fraction of the cost of delivering a service, just recovering a bigger fraction rather than a smaller fraction. So those schemes which were set in the mid-1990s in no way reflect the cost of delivering the services or the actual practicalities of delivering the service, which I think is also what Laney is referring to. But we're not going to get the government to change any of those without a complete about-face principled approach to why they even fund legal aid, what purpose it serves, what the overarching objective of legal aid is. We've got to solve that first, or we simply won't get ministers to commit to the other things that we need. Some excellent food for thought there. Thank you so much, Chris and Lainey, for your really valuable insights. And I look forward to having you back once we hear the outcome of the Civil Legal Aid Review and um, as, as that work progresses. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening in to this month's episode of The State of Our Nation. For more information, please go to www.accesscharity.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at Access Charity One. At a time when the third sector continues to struggle in the face of economic uncertainty, your support has never meant more. That's why I would like to take this opportunity to let you know about our cost of living crisis campaign set up to help us provide free legal advice to people in England, ensuring they get the support they're entitled to. To make a pledge, please see the link to our Crowd Justice page in the bio. I hope you will all tune in next month to hear our next exciting panel of guests. <laughs>